The title of this morning's message, kind of part of our gratitude uh, days here of Thanksgiving, is called Remember Not to Forget. Forgetfulness can be inconvenient, can't uh, it, to some of us who are forgetful. That's why I talk about phones. I'm, I put alarms and uh, things on here that uh, remind me. I have a little timer on here that helps me stay on time. It doesn't mean I always obey it, but I do try to keep watch of it to know my time. Uh, if somebody even, uh, somebody said, Lori, you said something to me, what did I say? Send me an email because that will remind me because if you tell me coming in here, I'm not thinking about anything except what I'm going to do up here. And so we have all those reminders. I, uh, some of you have a vehicle where you don't have a key, but you have one of those little fobs. Anybody have the, that car like that? And I, we had two of them when we bought our car and one of them, I have yet to find it. I have misplaced it, maybe threw it away. And, you know, there's like two or $300 to replace. Uh, and that was an expensive, forgetful event, all right? And uh, sometimes, you know, we misplace keys or forget dates or whatever and all that. And sometimes those things aren't important. If you're an electrician or a surgeon, I hope you're not forgetful. I hope you have a good memory. You read stories about people doing surgeries and finding parts and tools, you know, or whatever, surgical tools in their body. You know, how does that happen, right? Forgetfulness can be uh, kind of lethal if you uh, uh, don't have a good me- memory in some fields. When I was thinking this morning about this, I thought of a time when I was, uh, I think, about 15 years old. And uh, I went to a Christian school for a number of years and in Christian schools, anybody go to a Christian school? All right. Now, in some Christian schools, uh, you don't have dances. All right. That's they don't have senior and all that. So they have what they have sports banquets. Well, I was fifteen, and uh, of course, I couldn't drive. I had talked my brother into giving me a ride to go and pick up this girl that I had asked to go to the sports banquet. Had, you know, a suit and tie and vest. We were wearing vests then, you know, looked pretty pretty sharp. And uh, I went over there and went to the uh, house and pulled in the driveway. And, uh, you know, I was a little nervous. And he was kind of, you know, he was man on the town. So he was like, you know, when you go in there, go in there and shake the hands with the dad. You know, he's giving me all this pep talk and everything to do, Right. So I go up to the door and um, not ring the doorbell, and they open the door, and the door swings open, and I just, you know, I go right in, and immediately people are sitting around the table, and I'm introducing myself, talking, whatever, and, and uh, I said, is, uh, I remember her name, uh, Ruth, and I said, is Ruth ready to go? And they looked at me, and they said, Ruth lives four houses down. I was at the wrong house. I forgot the address. So I said, thank you very much. Went out to the car, got in my car. My brother goes, where's your date? I said, she's four houses down. We got it. So uh, it, that, was a, that was a forgetful event. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I always made sure to get the, that right address. But uh, forgetfulness is uh, something that God... Uh, remembering is something God encourages his people all throughout Scripture. You remember when in Joshua, when the Israelites crossed over the Jordan into the new, the promised land, one of the things that they did in uh, Joshua chapter 4 was Joshua set up 12 stones of remembrance, and they were stones of remembrance that the Lord, uh, that he said that when your children ask you what do these things mean, you will be able to remember and generations follow will be able to remember the works that God had done in this miraculous of leading the children of Israel into the promised land, remembering. Uh, All throughout Israel, the prophets were always remember who you are, remember God's covenant to you as a nation. And even when they were in exile, one of the things that held the nation together was the remembrance not to forget Uh, the covenant of God that he gave Abraham and your identity. Even to this day, Jews, one one of the things that Jews who have lived in all over the world have been able to maintain a certain identity and not forget uh, ethnically speaking and even religious who they were, who their identity was, not forgetting. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
uh, Deuteronomy. I alluded to this last week, and I really didn't think I was going to uh, do it today, but I, it just kind of worked that way and felt like that was what the Lord would have us to do this morning. And in Deuteronomy, the entire book is, in a, in a nutshell, is kind of Moses' final address, his final speech, so to, you know, word, message uh, before the Israelites as they are on the cusp of, of this generation after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Some died in the wilderness. Remember they left Egypt? They were 40 years wandering around uh, the wilderness and the desert uh, or desolate area. And so some had died in the wilderness. Uh, some children were, and, and they were born in the wilderness. And so you have a generation of survivors and then you have a new generation that is going to be those that are going to enter into this promised land, the land of milk and honey, the land that God had promised uh, Abraham, and, and it's a big deal. But problem is Moses um, is not going to be allowed to enter into the promised land. If you remember that Moses uh, in Numbers um, uh, don't hold me to chapter 20, but anyway, numbers. Um, you know, the, the folks that were in the wilderness that he's leading, uh, they could really get on his nerves. I mean, they hadn't been out of Egypt that they were already griping and complaining about what they were eating, and they thought, and they began to murmur and say, it was better when we were in Egypt and complain. And at some point, they were doing that again. In fact, it got so intense on a few occasions that they even talked among themselves about killing Moses. Thank you for not sending out memos about killing the pastor, you know, because you're unhappy. You know, I appreciate that. But, and so one day in Numbers, it just, you know, you got to, Moses was a human. He wasn't Superman. He was a human. And uh, he took his staff and the rock that God had miraculously provided water in the wilderness, but he struck the rock. He was angry, and he struck it in anger over their rebellion and what they were saying. And water came forth out of the rock, but as a consequence, God judged Moses. You know, sometimes leaders will, will have a more severe judgment because of their responsibility. And the judgment of Moses was that God would not allow him to lead these Israelites he'd spent 40 years with, good, bad, and then, you know, he would not be allowed to lead them into this new land of promise. I don't know about you, but that'd be pretty disappointing. I mean, you know, you're holding out because you know that when you get in the promised land, you know, all the suffering and ordeal that you're going through will be worth it because you'll finally see after all this time. Remember, he's the one that God spoke in that burning bush and to go to Pharaoh and let my people go and the 12 plagues and you name it. And then now, right as he's kind of there on the edge of going in and it'll be worth it all, they'll sing that. It'll be worth it all. Now, I don't know if they'll sing that song. Some of you don't even know that song. Um, God says you're not going to be allowed to do that because you, were, you acted in anger, and that's your judgment. It didn't mean God rejected him. Uh, he, the Bible says, knew God face to face. When he died, the Bible says in, at the end of uh, uh, in the Scriptures, it says that God actually took Moses' body and God himself, probably a pre-incarnate, Christ took his body and God himself buried the body of Moses. Now, there's something very tender about that, but I think he also was doing it because he knew the Israelites' propensity to turn anything into an idol would have, who knows what they would have done with the bones of Moses, you know, created some shrine or something. So it didn't mean that God was rejecting Moses, but Moses was going to suffer the consequences as a leader of of his anger. And so here he is in Deuteronomy, he is giving this address to these Israelites who are going to enter into the promised land. And a lot of what we find in Deuteronomy is is somewhat of a warning. And Deuteronomy, if you were to kind of lay it out and and compare it from about chapter 6 to maybe chapter 26, it parallels very closely to the Ten Commandments. So when you hear and read Deuteronomy, what you're reading is is that Moses is expounding and talking about the Ten Commandments, reminding them 
of the law of God, of the word of God, and the importance of following God's word. Okay, you with me? All right? And so in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 8, it really parallels the first commandment, uh, thou shall have no other gods. And that's kind of the context that he's addressing them because he knows that once they go into the land, that once they get out of this suffering and they begin to prosper, something in the human nature changes. When we're no longer in crisis mode, we're no longer suffering, we're no longer just depending on every word from God, and we begin to, things begin to go fine, and we hit cruise control of life, and it's easy to drift and forget the one who brought you to this place, okay? Moses is going to give them a very serious and sober warning. Just as a side note, some uh, speculate, if you could say it this way, that Deuteronomy might have been one of Jesus' favorite books. Uh, I don't know that. There's no proof of that. It's just when you read in Matthew 4 when Jesus, as a parallel, now Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus went and fasted for 40 days, 40 uh, Jesus, as a type of the new Israel, now is, is himself in the wilderness. And so all the quotes, remember Satan came to him in the wilderness, in the desert, and, and the first thing, you know, Satan says that if you're really the son of God, do what? Turn these stones into what? Yeah. Nice, hot, buttery Cuban bread, right? Now, see, I just lost some of you there. You, now you're going to be fantasizing about Cuban bread. But yes, you know, and when you're hungry... You know, they say about the 45th, 50th day, your body begins to start consuming its own organs. So that's really, that's starvation, okay? It wasn't just like a little hunger we experience every now and then. Jesus quoted, and we'll see it here because this first quote is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live by, finish it, bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's in Deuteronomy, by the way, chapter 8. Uh, And each one of those, Jesus counters with a scripture, and all of those are taken from the book of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy isn't just, and the reason I've been emphasizing and doing a lot in the Old Testament is because I kind of neglect the Old Testament. We forget that's part of God's word, and we need to be students of the whole counsel of God. We looked at Jonah and Deuteronomy, and uh, during the month of December, we're going to look at the prophet Isaiah in anticipation of the coming Messiah and after the first of the year, uh, we're going to walk through about 10 weeks through the book of Exodus. There's a lot of wonderful things in there. But we look at it through New Testament eyes. We look at it through the lens of the cross, okay? So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you have your Bibles or have it on a, uh, uh, pages or your uh, smartphone or however you want to do it, is uh, you'll need it because otherwise you're not going to really get much out of the message today because you won't really be able to follow along. That's why I always encourage you, harp on you, nag you, bring your Bibles. If it's convenient to bring your your phone, iPad, whatever, do that. Bring uh, a Bible the way that the apostles carried it, leather bound with tabs and all that. Um, But whatever you do, you're not prepared for worship if you don't bring the Word of God. We're a church that emphasizes the Bible. That's, that's what's important. That's why we do what we do on Sunday mornings and we teach classes on it. And so you're not prepared unless you've got a unique memory and you can just memorize everything, then, then God bless you. But I doubt anybody here has that kind of memory. So use your Bibles and or take really good notes and go home and look the passage up. But this morning, we want to look at remember not to forget. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear your voice today through your word. Uh, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Give us a love for you and help us to remember, God, not to forget you, Lord, and the blessings that you have given us. We pray this in the Messiah's name, Jesus. Amen. And amen. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is in verses, and I just have three simple headings, and we're just going to, this is not a hard message, but we're just going to use that for a way to kind of keep things organized, is first of all, in verses eight, or verses one through six of Deuteronomy chapter eight, is remember not to forget 
God's directing providence. Remember not to forget God's directing providence, okay? So again, I'm not going to have the scriptures on the screen, so you'll need to use uh, some means, uh, or if you have a neighbor, somebody can look on, because we're just going to walk through this. Now, the word providence means to look ahead. It, it's, uh, it comes from the Latin that means foresight or making provision beforehand. It, it's, it's the word that helps us theologically understand that God sees ahead and God actively affects the circumstances for his sovereign purposes. And we talk about the providence of God. We're not talking about providence Rhode Island, or we're not talking about just, well, hey, we got lucky. No, we're talking about God, Romans eight twenty eight. God who works all things together for good. How can he do that? Because he sees ahead. R.C. Sproul says providence, just it's pro-video. Pro means ahead. Video means God sees visually what's ahead for our lives. Aren't you glad that God sees ahead, right? Let me say that again. Aren't you glad that God sees ahead, that we're not just going through life just hoping that, you know, just I hope I get lucky, I hope things work out, and, and God is clueless of what's going on like you. I'm glad that he is in my tomorrows. He's in my next years, and that's why I don't have to fear or worry. I still do, but I don't have to fear or worry because I can trust him. The old song says, because he holds those tomorrows in my life. And so look at verses 1 through 2. The whole commandment, this is Moses is talking about, Remember not to forget God's directing providence. Verses 1 and 2, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, intentional, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Verse 2, and you shall remember, remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Reminds me of what James says about trials in James 1. Remember, James 1 says, uh, don't, don't be disturbed over when trials come because trials are often used to test our faith, test the strength of our faith. To test the uh, validity of our faith, test genuine faith. And the purpose was that God says that I'm doing this and I have done this to test you and test what is in your heart. This is always about heart. People say, that some, you know, sometimes they say, well, the Old Testament, that's just a bunch of laws and commands. But the New Testament, now that's about the heart. No, the Old Testament is all about heart too. What about the New Covenant, the promise that he'll write his commandments on your Heart. This isn't just God was against mindless ritual worship in the Old Testament just as much as he's against it in the New. And so it says that, verse 2, he said, The Lord did this, testing you to know what was in your heart. Let me ask you, do you have a sense of God's directing providence in your life? Do you have a sense that even in those errors and mistakes, let's just call it what it is, sin, that God was still directing your life. I, you know, I always, in this time, I always can't help but think of Joseph as an example. If you know the story of Joseph, it's a, it just, I, I always talk about Joseph because it just always is just a shining example. You know the story of Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, a bunch of rotten guys. They were jealous. He's the youngest son of Jacob. Remember, he had the coat of many colors. They sold him into slavery. He was sold off, eventually wound up uh, in Egypt where through circumstances uh, he, he got put in jail, falsely accused, forgotten. All sorts of things happened in his life. But eventually he rose to prominent, prominence uh, by God's providential actions where he eventually became the second in command in all of Egypt next to Pharaoh. And God worked in his life. But there came a point when his brothers, his father Jacob's still alive, and they're back in the promised land. We're fast-forwarding. There is a famine, and so they are desirous for food. So they, the brothers travel to Egypt to buy food. 
They don't know Joseph in this way that I assume he was dressed in kind of Egyptian, and they encounter him, but Joseph recognizes them, and through a series of events, eventually Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And they thought that Joseph was going to kill them because Jacob, the dad, was dead, and they thought Joseph now was going to kill them, but Joseph says these uh, famous uh, and memorable words in Genesis 50. You may want to make a note of that if you're not familiar with the story of Joseph. Genesis 50, 19 through 20, Joseph said to them, said to his brothers, um, he said, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph earlier would say in Genesis 45, 8, he said, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Do you see how Joseph had what kind of perspective? He had a perspective of God's directing providence in his life. Now, Joseph would have had every reason to just wipe these guys out. I mean, he acknowledged what you did was evil, right? Called evil, evil. But I believe God, at that moment, I believe God did something in his life. I believe, yes, the Spirit of God did something in his life. And in that moment, instead of bitter and anger and wanting to exert retribution, he had a God perspective and said, you know what? You were just used by God to get me to the place for his purposes. Paul had that perspective, Philippians 1. He says, you know, the things, if you read Philippians 1, he says, kind of halfway through chapter 1, he says, the things that have happened to me, he's in jail, have actually benefited the purposes of God. That's the kind of God perspective that you just don't wake up all the time and have. But yet you say, wait a minute, is my life in God's hand? Is God directing my life? Has he directed my life? Has he demonstrated his faithfulness over my life? I love a quote. We spent a lot of time in October talking about Martin Luther, and there's a quote that he gives that I thought is pertinent here. He says, listen to this. Uh, He says, our Lord God doth work like a printer. Now, in the old days, you remember, uh, now, really old days. Now, I don't mean when Microsoft uh, DOS uh, came out. I'm talking about old days of printing presses, and they had to literally put the type backwards when they would print the page. So this is what he's alluding to. Our Lord God doth act like a printer who setteth the letters backwards. We see and feel his setting, but we shall see what is printed in the future life to come. Did you catch that? We see and feel him like a printer setting the letters, but we can't discern what the page is going to say until one day we see how God worked all things together for good. Even those things that, yes, were tragic, were real, were real sad things, uh, failures. Uh, some of you who may have been the beneficiary or maybe you make these uh, quilts or whatever where people bring kind of different pieces or whatever. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, I know a lot of uh, people have those or whatever. You ever flip it over and look on the back side and it just looks like a bunch of mess? Do they call it like a mosaic quilt or something like that? I don't know if that's... You can see I'm up on my quilting. Um, and you turn it over and it's just all the, you know, just... Mumbo-jumbo lines uh, of, of, of thread. That's what I'm working with. I'm searching for the word thread. Um, but you turn it over and you see a beautiful patchwork mosaic. And sometimes that's the way we look at things. We're looking at things this way, and we just see all this random stuff. But what does God see? He sees a perfect mosaic of beauty that he's putting together. Does that make sense to anybody? Is there, you got too much turkey in your body? Does that move anybody? It moves me, all right? Um, and so this is, uh, and why did God do this? Look at verses three and four. Why did he do this? It says that he humbled you. And now look, at the ESV, your version may say something different. It says same thing, basically. It says he humbled you, and it says that he let you hunger. 
what? God let me hunger. That's what it says. It says he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you know that man, there's the quote Jesus gave, man does not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Why, what, why did God allow to do this? You know why? Why sometimes God allows lack into our life? Why sometimes prayers are not just answered like putting a coin in a machine and we get our little answer? You know why? Because he wants us to be dependent on him. And God knows our heart better than we know ourselves. And if, if our abundance distracts us from God, sometimes when we're hungry, sometimes when there's a need that's unmet and we're, we're continually believing and pressing and saying, God, why are you allowing this particular job opening not to happen? Why are you allowing uh, this financial situation not to happen? You know why? Because it drives us to dependency upon him. What does it say? He says, God says, I provided you manna in the wilderness. That was, we don't know what manna is. But whatever it was, it sustained them for 40 years. And it was given um, for six days. And on the Sabbath day, they were allowed to collect, uh, actually on the sixth day, they were allowed to collect double in order to have it on the Sabbath because God did not bring it on the Sabbath. If they tried to store it like you got your leftovers stored in your refrigerator, any other day other than the sixth day, it was rotten and be with worms. They had It was dependency... And, you know, what, what does that connect us with? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Are we dependent on daily bread? There's millions, billions of people around this world that are dependent upon daily bread. I'm not. You're probably not. But isn't that what God wants is a dependency upon him? And we need to remember God's directing providence in our life. Notice with me secondly. Is remember not to forget God's definite promises. The first one referred to God's ways. This refers to God's word. God wants us to be dependent on what he has said. God is faithful in what he says. Um, when I think about, you know, we had a seminar on prophecy, and the wonderful thing about it is, is that God clearly stated that he would bring forth Messiah. Again, in December, that's, we're going to look at that, and through the prophet Isaiah, wonderful counselor, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the Messiah that was promised, but it even goes back earlier than that. In Genesis 3.15, when he promised a seed that would come through the woman that would crush the serpent's head. That's the first prophetic word of a coming Messiah that would, would come. And everything God was doing was to bring forth the serpent crusher, Jesus, to bring redemption. And God was faithful in giving that word. And guess what? God was faithful in fulfilling that word. So if his promises were literal in the first coming, we said, well, why would not we believe that his promises and his second coming would be any less literal? But God's promises into our life, that, that is something that Moses wants them to remember. Look at verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. That didn't just start there. That was back with a covenantal promise he gave to Abraham a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. That may not generate a lot of excitement with you, but if your entire livelihood was dependent upon an agricultural system, that was a land of abundance. Look, he says in verse 9, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack Nothing. That's a promise that God is making. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you could dig copper. This was going to be a, this was going to be a prosperous place. Remember, 40 years of eating manna. You know what manna means in the Hebrew? It means, what is it? Now, you may have said that a time or two at the dinner table and probably uh, got your head whacked, but uh, that's what it, manna means. What is it? And they ate, what is it, for 40 years? 
They had it on there, whatever else they put it on. I imagine the creative cooks of Israel probably did wonders with manna, but what is it? But God did that. He provided that, and he's saying just as God has provided that, that bread, that food, that they can make bread. I don't know what else they made with it, manna casseroles. But there's a sureness in God's promises. We know there's a sureness in God's promises concerning salvation. Paul said that there is finally laid up for me the crown of righteousness, the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who loved his appearing. There's a confidence. When he said being confident, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing that he, God, who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a definite promise there. And also in verse uh, 9, it says, not only this land of scarcity, they will lack nothing, there's a security there. They will be secure. And verse 10 says there will be satisfaction when they come into this place, when you enter in and to the promises of God, and you shall eat and be full. Thursday, you ate and were full. And three hours later, you're back picking and going after more. But he says... And when you come into the place where God has prepared for your life, there's a satisfaction. And one of the real dangers that we struggle with is a lack of contentment. We always want something more. As soon as you buy your phone and you spend whatever on it, guess what? Next month, the new phone is coming out. And all of a sudden, this piece of junk that you just got is old news. And we're discontent. I said last week, the whole marketing empire is designed to make you continually discontent with your life, where you live, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, whether you got, you know, as a kid, it uh, it was important that I had the right kind of shirt with the right kind of animal. The man on the horse had to be going the right way. Ralph Lauren Polo, that was cool. Now, I didn't go and spend... $80 on a whatever they are now. Thank God for TJ Maxx. I could look cool and hip at a discount, right? Of course, they didn't have TJ Maxx. I don't know how I finagled it. I think I had one. We just kept... But that was, you know, that was a status. I remember Nikes and Pumas. Guys, do you know what I mean? You know, a certain style. That was, you know, that was... Nothing has changed. We still kind of live that way. And the world is always just bombarding you with... Man, you know, you're not really up unless you have this or you have that. Constantly keeping the pot stirred of being discontent. And Christians come into church and they live their Christian life discontented. Instead of saying, you know what? God has fulfilled and is fulfilling great and marvelous promises in my life. And all I have needed, thy hand, the hymn writer says, has done what? Has provided. Now, maybe Moses wanted to stop there, and like most preachers do, we want to stop on a positive note, you know, leave them with a, with a nice inspirational, motivational talk. But Moses recognized after spending 40 years with these folks, but I think Moses also recognized his own life, is Moses recognized the sinfulness of the heart of humankind. He knew what was in the heart. He knew his own sin. He'd witnessed the sin of these, these Israelites for 40 years. And instead of, instead of just leaving them on a nice message about God's providence and his promises, I think Moses knew what Jeremiah would write. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so thirdly, Moses concludes with a warning with a warning. Look at number three, verses 11 through 20. Remember not to forget the deception of prosperity. An old Scottish writer, Thomas Carlyle, said, adversity is hard on a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, when adversity, when adversity strikes, life becomes rather simple. Our need is to survive, to make it through the night. 
But when prosperity occurs, life gets complicated. Our needs become numerous and often extremely complex. Invariably, our integrity is put to test. And there's about one in a hundred who can dance to the tune of success without paying the piper called compromise. Compromise. It often becomes slow, subtle, steps away of where we were in our relationship with Christ. What happens, verse 11, is we get an arrogance. In verses 11 through 16, there's, there's, there's an arrogance, there's a pride. Look with me at verse 11. Moses says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Remember, not to forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest... Here's the warning. When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, verse 14, what happens? Then your heart, your heart be lifted up and you do what? You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Is having a nice house a problem? No, just as long as that nice house doesn't have you. Money's not a problem as long as money doesn't have you. The blessings of God. What happens? Verse 14, 15, and 16, we see verse 14, they forget God's plan. They forget God. Verse 15, they forget God's protection. Remember it says, He led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. That's why he provided that miraculous water from the rock that Moses was a part of who brought you water out of the flinty rock. You forget God's plan, what he's brought you out of. You forget God's protection, those scorpions and serpents, those things that some of you should have been dead Some of you should not be here, but God. Verse 16, God's provision, we forget that he fed you in the wilderness. Verse 16, with manna, what is it that your fathers did not know that he might do what? Humble you, and there it is again, test you to do you good in the end. See, the testing of God, the trials of God, they're not to make you miserable and just play some game with you. The testing of God is in order to prove the faith and strengthen, and as James 1 said, I said earlier, the genuineness of faith. But what should our attitude be? Verse 17 and 18, beware lest you say in your heart. Do you see how many times heart is mentioned? Where's the problem? In the stuff? No. The stuff? No. The heart is what is moving away. What should our attitude be? Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart. We can say a lot of things in our heart and keep the outward performance pretty, looks pretty good. But God, God sees the heart. Remember what he told uh, the prophet uh, Samuel? He said, man looks upon the outer exterior when they were looking for a king, but it's God who looks upon the heart, what's inside of us. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. I did it. I did it. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, I said, I said a prayer and asked God, sure, but, but I'm the one that really did it. It's, it's all of this is because of me. story of a carpenter who was nailing shingles on a roof of a house and he lost his footing and he started to slide off and as he was sliding he began to pray Lord oh Lord help me he kept sliding again he prayed Lord oh Lord help me and he kept sliding until he got to the edge and a little nail sticking up caught hold of his pants and he came to a stop and said, uh, never mind, Lord, I'm good. 
Don't we do that? Moses says, be, be careful of the pride of the heart. Verse 18, Moses says, but this is where your heart should be. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth. We sometimes hear uh, prosperity type folks, preachers, use that. But they never quote the rest of it. It is the Lord who gives you power to get wealth. So mail in your seed faith of $100. And you're guaranteed to return a hundredfold blessing. No. It says... It is he who gives you power to get wealth so that, or that, he might do what? Establish or confirm his what? Covenant. Why has God blessed you? Why is God wanting to get you out of debt and bless you? So that you become the means that God functions and operates his kingdom work on this earth. How's he going to do it if he doesn't do it through us? That's how he has ordained it. That's what he has done. God's established you to be in right alignment in the use of your finances and your money and in your material goods so that they're always at the disposal for the purpose of the king. Why is he giving you this power? Why is he giving you that great job? Why is he giving you that promotion? Just so you can go and buy bigger and better stuff to leave your children when you die? No. He wants to do it. Because maybe instead of financing 233 shoeboxes, somebody will write a check and we can do 1,000 shoeboxes. You realize, I, I don't know this. I've not asked Sean. I don't look in this kind of deal. But all the money God needs is already here. Now, I will confess, like some pastors, we pray for some rich entrepreneur to join our church. Don't hold your breath. (laughs) And you know, in some ways, that would be a detriment. Because you know what God wants from you and me? Hearts. Hearts for God. Hearts that would say, you know what? I'm going to keep driving that old car. Because that money, you know what? I can do some things that would glorify God better than just having every cable channel under the sun on my television. And there's reasons you shouldn't, but that's another story. Think about the money. You and I, I will be honest with you, we just, we squander. Is that a guilt trip? No, it's just, it's just, what are we trying, we're just saying, Lord, help me to keep, help me get an alignment with your kingdom purposes. That's a continual challenge that God puts up on us. There is a deception and a subtlety of prosperity Look verses 19 and 20 as we round this out. Does this mean that, well, Moses, but hey, it's not really that serious. He didn't end this chapter like that. In fact, he, so he talks about the arrogance. It's all me. Look at what I've done. Produces an attitude of pride. And eventually it will lead to we call apostasy. Now, that may not be a word familiar to you, but apostasy is a, is a falling away. The Bible says in the end times, in 2 Thessalonians, there will be a great falling away from the truth as one of the signs of the coming of Christ. But apostasy uh, is closely related to the word in the, in the Greek that we get the word divorce. It's a separation apostasy. A person becomes an apostate. It's a falling away from true faith. It's a falling away from genuine faith. Now, my personal understanding of Scripture is that true, true believers do not fall into apostasy. It only reveals they were never believers to begin with. So what about backsliding? Well, you and I backslide a lot. Sometimes we, we, we don't always do what we need to do. 
Sometimes we, we don't always follow through, and there's times which we go through dry seasons, and we go through periods where, you know, we'll say, I feel far from God. But I like the quote, if you feel far from God, who moved? You or God? Someone had said about, about the security of the believer, likening it to Noah in the ark, and talked about all those people in the ark, and said, those who were in the ark may have fallen down in the ark, but they never fell out of the ark. They were secure in the purposes and plan of God. I believe that's what the Bible teaches, but I believe that sometimes we are too loose with our view of what conversion is. I have come to the conclusion, this is in my notes and haven't compared it with elders, but I'll just give you my thoughts I've come to the conclusion after 30-some-odd years in pastoral ministry, I cannot pastor unconverted people. I will spend my time beating my head against the wall trying to get people motivated to serve God when it comes to the conclusion they don't want to serve God. They have no interest in serving God. And I cannot pa- I can evangelize them. I can hopefully encourage them. But I can't pastor unconverted people. Look at, look at the pattern real quick. Verses 19. There's four things here that happen in this downward slide of moving from an arrogant attitude of pride, forgetting God. I've done this. I play Frank Sinatra. I did it my way 24-7. Notice the pattern in verse 19. What happens? It says, and if, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. What, the first act is they follow. We begin to follow. When we begin to turn away and begin to look to ourselves and forget God, we begin to follow a, or, and we make a conscious turning away from God who gave us all these things, and we began to follow after the idols of our heart. Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. That's the reason it's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. And does that mean we have little tiki dolls or whatever statues and all those things? No, no, we don't. We're, we're way more sophisticated than that. We have idols of prestige and wealth and power, all these things that divert our affections. That's what God is wanting. When he talks about heart, he's not wanting the thing that's pulsating blood. He wants your affections. What moves our affections? And if it's no longer him, then whatever it is, is an idol. We begin to follow it. And then when you follow, he says, verse 19, you go after other gods and the next phase of this is you serve them. You're moving apostasy. You're moving away from the true God, going after a false God, idol, and you're following, and now you're serving because it's won your affections. And you move from serving, verse 19, and you worship them. And the last step is, you shall surely die, perish. You see, Moses, on a practical scale, he knew that the surrounding nations were pagan, idolatrous, false religions, and he was concerned that once they got into that land and things began to prosper and grow and and there was no more suffering and there was no more trials, they'd be prone to, to kind of flirt with, hey, let's go see what, let's go see what, the Hittites are up to. You know, I know that little Johnny is, he's dating a fine girl. She's not part of the covenant of Israel. She's, she's part of another clan. She's a part of another people group that worship idols, but that's okay. They love each other. The Bible says, do not be unequally bound together with an unbeliever. Do you think God has some practical understanding of that? One of the worst things that I've heard in pastoral ministry or just life is somebody who intentionally marries somebody who has no desire or affection. They are unconverted. They are not a believer. I don't care if they go to church and they're a member. They're not converted. 
They have no heart. They have no desire for God. And the person says, but you know what? I believe that I can win them over. I rarely can remember anybody who's won that bet. It usually works the other way around. Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, corruption is revealed. Verse 20, he says, you will perish, you will die, just like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish. Because why? Why? Because you would not, you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Jesus said, if you love me, if, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll join Grace Church and get in pizza with the pastor, right? If you love me, John 14, 15, 21, you do what I say. You'll, you'll obey my word. Is that hard? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Jesus said, he who has my commandments, and here's the condition, and keeps them, it is that person who loves me. John 14, 21. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and I will reveal myself to him. Moses says, I'm not going to go with you. What would you say if you had last words to give your children? You knew that in a week you were going to die, and you had an opportunity before you were put in some state where you wouldn't be able to communicate. What would you say? Guys, every time you have an opportunity to work overtime, do it. I don't think that'd be what I'd say. Nobody's, I'm not aware of anybody that on record is on their deathbed saying, you know, I wish I had spent more time at the office. No. As a Christian, you would say, remember, kids, don't forget in your life.